October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the History of the Seventh-day Adventist Church podcast, episode number seven, James and Ellen. James and Ellen, like Bonnie and Clyde, Sonny and Cher, they really don't need last names because we're going to hear their names about five million more times over the rest of this podcast. And over time, they will vastly overshadow their senior partner, Joseph Bates, in founding the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's worth pausing to look at these two a little bit, because when we get going, all of this background will help fill in the gaps. So let's begin. At James White's funeral, his wife Ellen stood up. She recounted her feelings at seeing him on his deathbed. She said, I felt that it would be selfishness in me to wish to throw my arms of affection around him and detain him here. He was like a tired warrior lying down to rest, and I lay away my beloved treasure to rest and take up my life work alone. She went on to recount the death of their son before adding, And now he upon whose large affections I have leaned, with whom I have labored, and we have been united in labor for thirty-six years, is taken away. But I can lay my hands upon his eyes and say, I commit my treasure to thee until the morning of the resurrection. I do not go to his grave to weep. The morning of the resurrection is too bright. The point I really want to bring out about Ellen's eulogy of James is how she portrays James as her teammate. She leaned on him. She was united in labor with him for 36 years. Just before James died, he was thinking of all he helped build in Michigan, where they lived. My life, he said, has been given to the upbuilding of these institutions. It seems like death to leave them. They are as my children, and I cannot separate my interest from them. James and Ellen were first and foremost a ministry team, and as we will see over the life of this podcast, they could hang with the best business tycoons of their century, though their focus was radically different. Let's start with James. James Springer White was born in Palmyra, Maine in 1821 to John White, who was a descendant of one of the pilgrims of the Mayflower in 1620. That pilgrim was Peregrine White, the first person born to the pilgrims in America, but just barely. Peregrine was born on a ship while it anchored in harbor. An heirloom from Peregrine's father, William White, was passed down in the family. Was it gold, you ask? Was it his false teeth, you ask? Nay, but his knee buckles. Yes, his silver knee buckles. Dressed in the Dutch fashion, the pilgrims had baggy pants that usually ended just below the knee. Well, the men would wear ribbons or buckles to clamp them down. James tells us that if we need a visual, we should look at a painting of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Don't ask me any more about pilgrim fashion, because it will ruin your Thanksgiving. In any case, James makes special mention of these buckles in his autobiography. For in those early days of the family's journey to America, it was decreed that the eldest white son in every generation should be named John. James was not named John, and so the buckles were not passed down to him meaning that James had an older brother named, you guessed it, John. Too bad, but I'm offering ten shoelaces to anyone who knows where these buckles are today. Just look for someone named John. James was the middle of nine children. Waxing poetic, he wrote in 1868 that his four older brothers were still alive, while the four younger ones all sleep. His older brothers each ended up becoming ministers. 
one a Baptist in Vermont, and one in the Methodist Episcopal Church in Ohio. He lost one of his younger brothers, supposedly to Indians, he wrote, in a trip back from California. And when he turned 16, he was baptized into the Christian Connection, which is in no way related to the Christian dating site you probably won't admit that you thought of when you heard that word. The Christian Connection, spelled C-O-N-N-E-X-I-O-N, because they're hip like that, rose up with the Unitarians in rebellion against the established Congregational Church in America. The members of the Connection wanted a church experience that emphasized a less professional clergy, revivals, and generally common-sense religion over that hoity-toity theology. One of the things many members of the Connection rejected, James White included, was the Trinity. These guys were down-to-earth, simple, and strongly anti-Calvinist and anti-Arminian, meaning they didn't see very well with most denominations, which usually sympathized with one or the other of the camps. Eventually, James White became a minister in this movement, which meant a lot of thankless, penniless time riding around visiting people and preaching. Still, records have it that about a thousand people accepted the Millerite message in the winter of 1843 because of James's preaching. So it's probably for the best that James White became a preacher, because he started out as a school teacher with a whopping 29 weeks of formal education under his belt. Along with James, our old friend Joshua V. Himes, and, you guess it, Joseph Bates were also ministers in the Christian Connection. This guaranteed that the early Seventh-day Adventist movement was largely anti-Trinitarian. This would eventually change, but not before this first generation had been diluted a little bit. The positive takeaway from James White's church was the conditional immortality of the soul. That's really just an impressive-sounding way of saying that he, along with Joseph Bates, believe that people don't immediately go to heaven or hell when they die, but wait in the ground until the resurrection. This belief is a part of Adventism's core DNA to this day, and it's just as strange to other Christians today as it was then. I mean, try standing up at a funeral and saying, poor Uncle Billy isn't in heaven playing cards with Gabriel after all. Actually, he's just dead and here in the casket. Kind of a letdown. It's like you actually reached up and grabbed Uncle Billy and brought him down. Mood killer. More connection ideas permeated early Seventh-day Adventism via James White and Joseph Bates, including the idea that only consenting, informed men and women should be baptized. The doctrine that hell doesn't burn forever, and the organization of the church as a confederation of congregations loosely tied by a weak administrative government. I should make it clear that White's being a minister for the Christian connection did not in any way hinder his acceptance of the Millerite message. Miller's movement, you'll remember, wasn't to create a separate denomination. People picked up beliefs like they were at potluck, and while some certainly grumbled, this was a time of change. We didn't have the strong denominational boundaries of, this is what we all believe and you'd better not mess with it. This attitude did exist, of course, but it didn't apply to all the churches equally. William Miller was a Baptist. Joshua V. Himes was of the Christian connection. So what? And then we turn to Ellen Harmon. I mean, this is a woman who claimed to have over 2,000 visions in her life and claimed to be a prophet. Was she born in the manger or something? Was there an angel that announced her birth? What does the birth of a prophet look like? It turns out it looks like everyone else's birth. Ellen Harmon was born about 100 miles away from James in Gorham, Maine, 
in November 26, 1827. There were eight Harmon children who, with their parents, were serious Methodists. Ellen grew up frail and prone to illness. In her autobiography, Ellen skips past the family stories and blah, blah that James delights in telling, focusing on the accident that would affect her life. At nine, her family moved the short distance to Portland. She and her twin sister, Elizabeth, were walking when an angry older girl began chasing them with a rock. She and Elizabeth ran for it. But just as Ellen turned around to see if the girl was still chasing her, the rock broke her nose. She immediately passed out, waking up in a local store. The owner offered to take her home, but Ellen told the kind merchant that she could walk home just fine, and then ended up being carried home. For three weeks, Ellen was barely responsive. People began whispering that the girl wasn't going to make it. A neighbor even asked Ellen's mother, Eunice, if it would be okay to buy some burial clothes for Ellen. Others urged Eunice to prosecute the family of the older girl who threw the rock, but she wouldn't have it. These days, such an injury could have been repaired, and Ellen would look as good as new. But the damage to Ellen's face was permanent. When the incident happened, Ellen's father, Robert, was away in Georgia. And when he returned, he barely recognized her. The rest of the family had to assure him that this was indeed his daughter, Ellen, which has to be like the worst feeling in the world for a daughter. When she finally regained the strength to play, she found that some of her friends were horrified at the sight of her. Kids just have a hard time hiding their feelings. She wrote, A pretty face, dress, or good looks are much thought of. But let misfortune take away some of these, and the friendship is broken. It was during this time that Ellen got unnaturally serious about Christianity. She felt alone, and who else did she have to turn to but Jesus? As Ellen recovered, she couldn't breathe through her nose for two years. She also had a hard time concentrating on her schoolwork. Perhaps some ironic justice happened because the same girl who threw the rock was appointed by the teacher to tutor Ellen's rehabilitation. Boy, that would have been awkward. Eventually, even the teacher gave up. Ellen's reading, writing, and concentration plateaued, and the teacher thought it better for her to stay home. And this was the end of Ellen's life as a student. She would never have any more formal education before going on to write 50,000 pages in her life and to be voted by the Smithsonian Magazine as one of the top 11 religious leaders in American history. Ellen Harmon dropped out of school and made something with her life before it was cool. A few years later, William Miller came through Portland and gave his lectures on the Second Coming. Ellen was depressed. She didn't feel good enough and didn't want Jesus to come back. She kept going to Methodist meetings with her parents and eventually broke down and asked to be baptized by immersion, that is, to be dunked rather than sprinkled with water. Well, the pastor wanted to sprinkle the baptismal candidates because a high wind was driving the waves, but he begrudgingly took her into the water and baptized her by immersion. Though a baptized Christian now, Ellen still wrestled with the seeming indifference of many older Christians. William Miller came back through Portland, and this gave Ellen some relief. What he was preaching was simple. Be ready for Jesus to come. It simplified life. It gave you one thing to focus on, one thing that framed jobs and families and plans and vacations and so on, and puts them in perspective. Many of her fellow Methodists just shrugged off Miller's message, and it troubled Ellen. During one meeting at the church, an elder challenged her belief in the second coming. 
suggesting that it was better to live a full life on earth than to want Jesus to come back. On another occasion, Ellen related how the Lord was blessing her because of her belief that he was coming back soon. The leader interrupted her, telling her that Jesus blessed her through Methodism and Methodism alone. Now, we can understand this leader's mindset, I think, when we realize how a lot of churches felt threatened by Miller and his strange message. Still, this didn't sit well with the family, and soon enough the church brought them to a trial for the sin of attending William Miller's meetings. I want to be careful and note that this was the action of one church and does not represent the Methodist church today or as a whole at any time. In the end, Ellen's family was kicked out. You will recall that part of the scandal of Miller's message was that it was commonly accepted that there would be a reign of a thousand years of peace before Jesus came to destroy the wicked. So people had been accustomed to feeling safe, that they had time, that there's always a tomorrow. Miller came with a hurricane of urgency. He met every tomorrow with a right now, and this upset a lot of people. It was certainly an issue many established churches would be alarmed about. But Ellen never forgot that it was at a Methodist meeting that she really felt Jesus for the first time. Just the same, she had a lot of issues. She didn't feel saved, that there must be something wrong with her. She felt confused, she was afraid of God, and she finally talked to a man named Elder Stockman, a local preacher in Miller's camp, who graciously listened to her concerns. When she was done telling all about her doubts and about the stone that nearly killed her and her frustrating attempts to read and write, he was crying. He placed his hand on her head and lamented that all this should happen to someone so young. He told her that God must have a special work for her and gave her some promises from the Bible. Go free, Ellen, he told her. Return to your home trusting in Jesus, for he will not withhold his love from any true seeker. He prayed with her, and she would later recall that during these few moments, quote, I had attained more knowledge on the subject of God's love and pitying tenderness than from all the sermons I had ever heard. Ellen drew ever closer to the Millerite cause, trying to convince her friends that Jesus was coming soon. She was, like everyone else, mortified by the scoffing she and her fellow Millerites endured after the disappointment. Every day was news of so-and-so falling away from the faith. But Ellen held on. She had been through disappointment before. And when she had her first vision some weeks later, she felt the call to encourage the disappointed. But we'll get to that in a minute, because I hear James White coming. As James White rode around encouraging the discouraged Adventists in the year after the disappointment, the 23-year-old preacher happened to travel to Orrington, Maine, just up the road from Portland. As it so happened, some friends of Ellen, the Jordans, were heading to Orrington to return a horse owned by James White. She obliged their invitation to come and kept them company, hoping to encourage the saints there. And then she met James. Well, that's her story, at least. James claims to have met her in 1843 in Portland. James's first impression of the then 16-year-old was one of admiration. She was a decided Adventist, he wrote. He was moved that pastors all over sought her as a speaker. James pays Ellen the compliment of calling her, quote, a good laborer in the cause of Christ, end quote. And that's praise from an incurable workaholic who valued her first and foremost not because she was pretty, made him laugh, or all of that, but because she was an industrious worker for the cause. James was an early supporter of Ellen as a prophet, too, 
which seems like it would make a dating relationship kind of complicated. I mean, how do you go out with someone you think is a prophet? How do you surprise somebody like that? When he could, James was happy to chauffeur her around New England, with a chaperone, of course. And James's gift was publishing, and so he published an account of Ellen's first vision in April of 1846. A colleague mailed off a copy to William Miller in hopes of bringing him around, but Miller, probably buried in a pile of mail from various factions looking to gain his support, never responded. As they rode around, Ellen came to lean on James. Other men would offer to take Ellen around, but as she told one of them, I have had my special orders. I may trust Elder James White. In my mind, I pictured James standing behind her, grinning and pointing to himself. Yep, that's me, boys. Both would later claim that neither of them ever thought about getting married because they thought Jesus would come back in 1845, and so, really, what was the point? He was just happy to be her bodyguard, or, as she put it, her lawful protector. They slowly came around to the idea of marriage, even if other people didn't agree with them as readily. James would write that most of our brethren were opposed to the marriage in the sense that as time was very short, it was a denial of faith. You can understand where he's coming from if you think Jesus is coming back soon and you're running around preaching this, and then you go and get married and put down roots and start having kids and all of that. Well, it seems like you're saying one thing about going to heaven soon and yet planning for a lifetime down here. But finally, they aimed to be married in late August. It doesn't seem like they planned this in any detail ahead of time. James was in Massachusetts on Wednesday, August 26th, to conduct a funeral. He wrote excitedly to a friend about how he was leaving that night to travel for 24 straight hours in order to make it to Portland in order to marry Ellen. He boasts that, quote, Sister White says that the way is made plain. That is, that she feels it's right for them to get married, and so he buoyantly declares that they'll be married perhaps Monday. James didn't have to wait until Monday, however, because that Sunday, the 25-year-old James wed the girl of 18. We'd imagine that two devout Christians had a big church wedding with flowers and hymns and embarrassing relatives, but they didn't. Their whole approach to life thus far had been entirely rational and practical. They got married in a courthouse with Charles Harding, Justice of the Peace, in Portland, Maine. They simply believed that they could do more for Jesus together than apart and that this should be the foundation of their marriage. There was love, of course, they weren't robots, but it was a hearty, down-to-earth kind of love. This practical approach to love was seen in Ellen's eulogy after James died, when she called him a warrior, and that they had been united in labor. This is how James rather unromantically describes their marriage in his memoirs. Quote, God had a great work for both of us to do, and he saw that we could greatly assist each other in that work. End quote. He would go on to talk about how they joined their forces to spread the message from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Their fundamental view of life was that there was sacred work to be done. Ellen devoted three sentences to their marriage in her memoirs, telling us that, quote, August 30th, 1846, I was united in marriage to Elder James White. Our hearts were united in the great work, and together we traveled and labored for the salvation of souls, end quote. She, too, portrays their marriage in terms of a team saying that their hearts were united in a great work and spoke of their travel together. I think there were probably two reasons for this unromantic attitude towards marriage. 
First, their sole formative religious experience was climbing the Everest of expectation and urgency that was the Millerite movement. Move, 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 we are all running out of time was kind of the order of the day. Second, they were sensitive to people criticizing their marriage as a betrayal of that urgency. So they tended to emphasize the good business deal side of the relationship to people. They wanted people to understand that this would help them get the work done, not hinder them. Again, it's not that they didn't love each other, it's just that these factors, combined with the times they lived in, are almost unrecognizable to our sappy, marry-only-for-love attitude today. But I think we could learn a lot from their focus on being a team and accomplishing what they feel they were called to do. So Team Ellen and Team James hit the road, but the, on the road they had no Seventh-day Adventist buildings, no, no buildings that they owned. So they met fellow believers in homes where occasionally others dropped by who were curious to hear a woman speak, for instance. James would usually stand up and teach some doctrine or another before sitting down. Then Ellen would speak, as James put it, melting the, her way into the tenderest feelings of what James optimistically calls a congregation. Now after Joseph Bates convinced them to keep the Sabbath in the fall of 1846, they made their way to the 50 or so people around New England who believed likewise. They were constantly on the road, traveling in the cheapest ways possible. This meant long train rides in tight, cramped cars, perpetually in the fog of tobacco smoke. James dryly described their sleeping conveniences like this, quote, We lie down on the hard floor, dry goods boxes or sacks of grain, with carpet bags for pillows, end quote. Things remained unchanged even when their first baby was born. Good-naturedly, James refused pity, arguing, hadn't Jesus suffered more? But let's get back to those visions that Ellen White had. Because it's torture to just casually mention that Ellen Harmon had a vision and then move on. It's not like everyone has these things, right? In fact, go up to your pastor sometime and tell him that you had a vision. Just watch the wheels in his head turn as he tries to categorize what brand of crazy you've been buying. There will be an awkward moment, especially if you tell him that he was in your vision. It's just that having a vision in the implication of a modern-day prophet sounds crazy. It's the sort of thing we associate with cults and weird groups of people. And most Christians have this unspoken assumption that there are no prophets anymore. It's going to break the narrative we're telling you here, if you zone out over this vision stuff, because they're important. So just do us a favor and hang on. You can judge for yourself whether you think she was a prophet or not, because one thing is for sure. The people in her day were no more eager to accept someone as a prophet than we are. Skeptics abounded in Ellen's life. A local physician who dabbled in mesmerism proclaimed that Ellen was an easy target for this kind of superstition and that he could hypnotize her and give her a vision if he wanted. Well, challenge accepted. He tried for a half hour before finally giving up. In the aftermath of the disappointment, there were a lot of fanatics going around and claiming some special message from Jesus, some dream, some vision, whatever, and Ellen got lumped in with the rest. Mesmerism was probably the most common charge that people laid against Ellen and her claim of having dreams. But foremost among the skeptics, at least early on, was Joseph Bates. Ellen's first vision was in December 1844, and she claimed to have seen the disappointed Adventists walking a narrow, dangerous path. She was told that if they keep their eyes on Jesus, they would be safe. 
Some grew weary and turned off the path, but she was encouraged to keep going. The vision progressed through the second coming, and she went with the saved up to heaven. There she met Elder Stockman, the one who had taught her about the love of God so well, and he asked Ellen about all of the terrible things that passed on the earth after he had died. She reached for those memories, but came up blank. She writes, We tried to call up our greatest trials, but they looked so small compared with the far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory that surrounded us, that we could not speak them out, and we cried out, Alleluia, heaven is cheap enough. It was this vision that James White published in 1846, and while Bates was encouraged by the message, he had some real doubts about Ellen as a prophet. He wrote, quote, I am a doubting Thomas. I do not believe in visions. But if I could believe that the testimony the sister has related tonight was indeed the voice of God to us, I should be the happiest man alive. Bates's objections were natural. It wasn't until a few months after James and Ellen were married, in November 1846, that he finally came around. Bates traveled to Topsham, Maine, just north of Portland, and prayed with the believers there. Suddenly, Ellen went into vision again, seeing a view of the planets, calling out what she saw as she was seeing it. J. N. Loughborough records it for us. She began to talk about the stars, giving a glowing description of rosy-tinted belts which she saw across the surface of some planet, and added, I see four moons. Oh, said Elder Bates, she is viewing Jupiter. Then having made motions as though traveling through space, she began giving a description of belts and rings in their ever-varying beauty, and said, I see seven moons. Elder Bates exclaimed, She is describing Saturn. Joseph Bates stood up at the end of this, and said it was just as accurate as anything he had read or observed in the sky. He was something of an amateur astronomer. And Bates asked Ellen, if she had ever studied astronomy herself, and she said she had never looked into it. I mean, she had a third-grade education. Bates concluded that her visions were real. There was no other way this girl with a third-grade education, having never studied this issue, could know these things. Now, of course, people point out today that we've found 67 moons around Jupiter, not four. And that's all good and fine, but in Ellen's day, Jupiter only had four moons, all discovered by Galileo in 1610. The point is, if Ellen had seen 67 moons, or however many there really are, since we are still discovering more, no one would have believed her. For that matter, even the Bible isn't meant to be a scientific textbook, right? Because it reflects the terminology and cosmological understanding of the time. And since Ellen never wrote the planetary vision down, it seems that its chief goal was to appeal to and convince Joseph Bates. And it worked. Things are looking up for these as-yet-unnamed Seventh-day Adventists. They'd weathered the storm. They had made sense of the disappointment and regrouped around the banner of these new ideas. While God was using Ellen White with these visions, James and Joseph Bates were very much involved in leading the fledgling movement, which had a whopping 50 members in the entire world. It wasn't easy. The whole thing almost died right there because James and Ellen were poor, poor, poor. They seldom stayed at home, preferring to visit and build up the young church, and that really wasn't a lucrative endeavor. Ellen would later quip that James White was the best man who ever trod shoe leather, and with the traveling the new married couple did, it's safe to say James White got his money's worth from his shoe leather. Shoes had to last, because they could barely afford anything. Ellen was often sick, while James only earned money here and there, 
And of course, that's the perfect time for Ellen to get pregnant.
Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Avenus History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>